This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, September 28th, 2015. Episode 17, Concerning the Ill-Gotten Cassula. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and today we're going back to the basics. So up until last episode's uh, in-memoriam diversion into some local anecdotes from the Lanercost Chronicle, uh, other than that, we've spent most of the summer with texts about big historical events at the national level. Uh, with the reign of William Rufus and a three-parter on Simon de Montfort and the Second Barons' War. Uh, But the texts that inspired me to start this podcast were mostly Abbey Chronicles and local histories, not the big chronicles on wars and the succession of kings, uh, but the little ones. Um, Though little in this case doesn't necessarily mean brief, Uh, some drag on a bit. These smaller-scaled chronicles about arguments between the prior and the cellarer, uh, and the costliness of various building projects. These are the histories that really intrigue me. It's true that sometimes they devolve into little more than ledgers on the one hand or necrologies on the other, Uh, but when they pick up a narrative, they can give you an incredible insight into daily life and individual relationships in ways that uh, the large-scale histories often do not. Um, And rhetorically, they can be a bit more interesting because you have writers who don't necessarily have clear role models, uh, especially not classical ones, for how to write history at this scale. So they sometimes go down interesting paths that they might not in a more conventional history. So with summer behind us, let's head into the fall with a bit from a monastic house history. And for listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, um, as I understand it, it takes about six months for internet traffic to reach you, um, traveling as it does by steamship. Uh, So, you know, by then our seasons ought to be more or less synchronized. But to ease us out of large-scale history... Today's chronicle is from an abbey whose identity is closely tied up with national politics. Uh, This would be Battle Abbey, which was founded by William the Conqueror a few years after the Battle of Hastings, uh, right on the site of the battle, uh, hence the abbey's name. Um, Actually, its name is the Abbey of uh, Saint Martin of Battle, or do we just say Saint Martin? Um, I think I'm going to go with Saint Martin. It's a Norman context, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, the the abbey is commonly known as just plain Battle Abbey. William is said to have ordered the abbey built to memorialize the battle and the death of King Harold, Uh, though what precisely was being memorialized varies from version to version. The abbey's account is that William made a vow to build an abbey if God gave him victory in battle, and... Having won the Battle of Hastings, this promise is what he eventually fulfilled. Alternatively, some accounts say that the conqueror had the abbey built because the Pope demanded that William do penance for the massive slaughter of English people that occurred during the Norman Conquest. Um, The penance story seems to be better supported uh, historically, 
But if endowing the Abbey was meant to show contrition, the Conqueror has a peculiar notion of what that means, uh, since he builds this monument on the very site where his enemy, King Harold, fell, and then names it Battle Abbey. Um, Eleanor Searle, who's written a lot about Battle Abbey, calls this naming a piece of Norman insolence, uh, which is a phrase I rather like. Whatever the reason for its foundation, one of the special traits uh, that Battle Abbey claimed for itself was that it was a royal abbey, directly under the care of the crown and not answerable to lower authorities. Challenges to this particular privilege end up accounting for quite a bit of the history tracked by the abbey's chroniclers. Which brings us to our source for today's reading, the Chronicle of Battle Abbey. This chronicle covers the period from the Battle of Hastings in 1066 up to the year uh, 1176, where the manuscript breaks off. The surviving manuscript is yet another Cottonian manuscript, in this case, Cotton Domitian A2. The part of the chronicle we'll be hearing today uh, was written by an anonymous monk of Battle Abbey, um, who may have been named Osmond, uh, and who we can feel fairly certain acted as the legal advocate for the Abbey in some of the lawsuits that are recorded in the Chronicle. I'll be reading from the 1851 translation of the Chronicle of Battle Abbey by Mark Antony Lower, uh, which has been digitized by Google Books and is available there. Uh, and this edition spells the name Battle Abbey, um, B-A-T-T-E-L, uh, if you're looking it up, which is a variant that uh, seems to have fallen out of favor. Concerning this translation, uh, I do have to share a great example of an unintentionally ironic statement from the translator's preface, or at least I assume the irony is unintentional, uh, though, you know, some of these 19th century translators aren't above a little tongue-in-cheek commentary. In this case, our translator describes the Latin style of the chronicle. Um, he says, the style of the chronicler, though generally pretty intelligible, is often turgid and inflated in the highest degree and abounds with a semi-legal and pleonastic phraseology sufficiently offensive to classical taste. Some of his passages are obscure and many phrases redundant, but I hope that his meaning has been generally caught and conveyed in the English dress in which the work now first appears. There has to be a rhetorical term for this kind of complaint, uh, that's an example of the very thing being complained of, uh, but it's it's escaping me. Um, something that would describe a sentence like, your worst trait is your abstruse and sesquipedalian vocabulary. I mean, we have pot calling the kettle black, uh, but there has to be a nice Greek term for that, right? Um, so tweet me if you have any ideas, uh, at MDT Podcast. Oh, and one additional note. Um... While about 95% of today's text is Lower's translation, uh, I've made a few emendations and alterations based on Eleanor Searle's translation in her uh, more recent edition of the Chronicle. Anyway, uh, today's story takes on the trappings of a miracle story, um, specifically uh, a divine curse miracle story. But at its core, it's really about the intermural squabbles and attempts to jockey for royal favor that make up the pith and marrow of so many of these abbey chronicles. In this case, the squabble involves the purchase of a vestment 
uh, referred to in the Latin text as a casula or a planeta, um, for which the English term is uh, chausable. Uh, this is the outermost vestment worn by a priest during mass or other liturgical functions. To picture it, it, it kind of resembles uh, a poncho. Um, it's a big round piece of cloth with a hole in the middle that you stick your head through. Uh, sometimes it can be shaped a bit more like a heavy-duty apron, where it just covers the back and chest and leaves the arms free. But a key aspect of this casula or chausable is that it is the top layer, um, the most visible of the vestments, and as such, it's a site for rich decoration. Having a really nice one is how you might show off your church's status. And now one more last quick bit of context uh, to explain what's going on in the Chronicle at the point that we'll be jumping in. Uh, so it's the year 1096, during the reign of our buddy William Rufus, and the Chronicler has just finished describing the election of Abbot Henry, whom uh, he says was a good man, but uh, was unfortunately steered by evil counselors into bad decisions which left the Abbey vulnerable to its enemies. Uh, which in this case are the jealous bishops and the abbots of other abbeys. And it is a dispute with one of those abbeys that I shall now relate. and the abbey was thus exposed to the craft of its enemies, when it happened that as King William was engaged in the concerns of Normandy, among the many suppliants to his bounty, there came to him the abbot of the monastery of Fly, where St. Jeremaris, illustrious for his virtues, is reported to be enshrined. This man anxiously solicited from the king for his church a costly vestment called a cassula, or chasuble, or, if he had not one prepared, a sufficient sum of money for the purchase of one. But the king put him off till he should return to England. After his return, one of the monks of that abbey assiduously reminded him of his promise, and at length the king, who was upon an expedition into Wales, wearied out with his importunity and urged by the advice of others, dispatched him to the abbey of St. Martin of Battle, where now our Minerva is laboring, with a precept sealed with the royal seal, demanding, without delay, ten pounds of silver of English money for this purpose. Abbot Henry, upon receipt of the order, to which he could by no means assent, privately dispatched two of the brethren to the king, that they might urge upon him the great poverty of the abbey, and request him to desist from so objectionable a demand, lest a custom should spring from this precedent. But the king, in no wise softened by expostulation, threateningly ordered the full sum to be paid to the foreign monk. The troublesome monk, moreover, urgently prosecuting his demand, the abbot, compelled by poverty, yet not without heavy lamentations, collected from the sacred amulets of saintly relics previously mentioned a sufficient quantity of silver to satisfy this most vexatious extortioner. Having gladly received this, this monk set about to purchase purple cloth suitable for the work, 
and, counting not how but what he had won, joyfully conveyed it to his abbey. So the vestment was forthwith made, and no apprehension of God's judgment being entertained, all things appeared to have been satisfactorily performed. But suddenly, at a certain time, about the third hour of the day, the Lord thundered from the heavens, and the wonted calmness of the air was changed into a thick darkness, and, as it were, the shadow of death. And there arose a mighty tempest of lightning and thunder. As we have said, the third hour of the day had commenced, and the brethren were chanting the verse, Sharp Arrows of the Mighty, when, on a sudden, the day assumed the horror of dark night and the trembling earth, shaken by the crashing of the heavens, seemed to rise beneath their feet. All the brethren, fearing the lightning stroke from heaven, desisted from the occupation in which they were engaged and prostrated themselves in prayer. And lo, in a short space, two of the monks were deprived of their vital breath. Though all were greatly amazed, they lost sight of the cause of this direful visitation. But the Lord, the righteous judge, was not slack to manifest his vengeance for the spoiling of his beloved Martin, and the tokens of the saints preserved in his temple. For the next year the visitation was renewed in the following manner. The vestment of which we speak was lying carefully folded up in a linen cloth between two of the best vestments of the abbey, when the stroke of a thunderbolt, brandished from heaven, pierced it, and although the linen cloth and the vestments above and beneath escaped all injury, this casula had wonderful holes made in it by the fiery force of the lightning, and thus was the cause of so great a calamity manifestly shown. Thus it is that the divine power is displayed to be marveled at. For, like the Babylonish furnace, which burnt only the bands of the just, so the fire took effect only upon this vestment, which it showed to have been unrighteously obtained from the spoils of the saints. We trust that no one will take offense that we have given a somewhat different account from that of a certain person who has before us ably written concerning this vestment, uh, inasmuch as we have learned these particulars from those who were present as eyewitnesses, and mainly from the exactor of the money, the monk Richard himself, who, happening to come hither with his abbot, Odo of Fly, solicited forgiveness for himself and his convent before the Lord Abbot Warner and a full chapter of the Abbey of Battle, and the abbot himself avouched it, calling upon the name of God. And what was then related we have recorded in words of truth. So thus ends the tale of the ill-gotten Casula. Now, on the one hand, this is a fairly typical example of the thriving medieval tradition of the vengeful God and his vengeful saints who dish out supernatural punishments and curses just as readily as they provide miraculous cures and protection. But there is certainly some narrative oddness to this particular story of divine justice. But first, the final paragraph of this story uh, raises a question that we should address. Our chronicler says, basically, Now, of course, you've heard a different version of this story, but rest assured, this one is the true version uh, attested by eyewitnesses. So obviously, we want to know, 
what's the other version? Um, and alas, we don't know what it is. It hasn't survived. And there's no way to know what details were different uh, or whether those were minor details or significant deviations. But I like this little they say, I say moment. It's another one of those spots where the impression of ironclad authority that the impersonal narration of these chronicles sometimes creates, uh, where that authority is punctured. And you can see the author having to massage his audience's credulity a bit. And now a little narrative analysis. The thing that strikes me about this story is how the normal patterns of escalation are inverted. The first incident ends with two monks dead, um, but the impious Abbey of Fly has not learned its lesson. So next they suffer the great calamity of minor property damage, um, one burned-up vestment. And the burning specifically doesn't even touch the other vestments. It's entirely constrained to the wrongfully acquired chasuble. Uh, the miracle of the second lightning strike is the complete lack of collateral damage. Uh, so why were two monks killed the first time? If we take the fiery furnace analogy our chronicler uses to its natural conclusion, then the unworthy have been blasted away, meaning the two dead monks deserved their deaths for some sin committed, with the suggestion that it's the Abbey's corporate sin of holding on to this chasuble, though, you know, in the end, the abbot and the bagman monk uh, both live on to beg forgiveness um, from Battle Abbey later. And we might also note, that's all our chronicler reports them doing. Uh, nothing indicates that they ever repaid the money that they got from the Abbey. Um, and even the fiery furnace illusion is rendered weirdly backwards here. Um, the miracle of the fiery furnace is that the flames don't burn up the blessed, uh, not that the wicked bonds of the blessed were burned away. Um, the miracle of the fire not consuming the blessed is recast as a miracle of the fire only consuming the iniquitous. Uh, this is one of those stories that rather makes you believe um, that it, it must be presenting real events because no one would compose a story in such a disorganized way. It keeps stumbling over all of the normal uh, patterns of narrative development. And I suppose that's sort of charming in, it, in its own way. Um, and I don't really have any more insight to offer on this story. Uh, it's a strange little tale. Um, there is one other little thing to just call out, though, um, which is William Rufus's Godfather moment, uh, where he gets to just point at one of his entourage and say, pay the man, and the loyal follower is just expected to whip out their wallet and count out the requisite number of bills, uh, with no expectation of reimbursement. Um, after all, from Don Williams' point of view, it's all his property anyway. You find that mob politics, um, especially as portrayed by Hollywood, are some of the easiest analogs in modern pop culture uh, for how feudalism works. Uh, you could even say that HBO has built its television series prestige on echoes of feudalism, uh, from The Sopranos to Game of Thrones, uh, with gangsters and bosses of The Wire thrown in for good measure. Uh, I don't know if we could fit Deadwood in there, uh, I think the 
realpolitik of Deadwood takes us uh, a bit more into the Renaissance rise of the burghers and city-state ruling council politics. Uh, and I'd love to drop a Deadwood sound clip in here, um, but I don't know that there's a single bit of dialogue uh, I could use that wouldn't obligate me to put an explicit tag on this episode. All right, it's time to answer our riddle from last episode. Uh, this was another of the Claret riddles. Um, I presented it as an homage to slasher films, um, but the disappointing truth is that it's really uh, closer to a bit of Sunday school trivia. The riddle was, What was he that slew the fourth part of the world? Meaning, who killed one quarter of the world? And the answer from the riddle manuscript is, Cain, when he slew his brother Abel, in the which time there were but four persons in the world. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, I'm not even sure how biblically sound that is. Um, you know, the, the timeline in Genesis for when Adam and Eve have all their children is pretty vague. But there you go. Uh, and I'm going to change things up a bit. Instead of another riddle, uh, we're going to do a medieval word. And by medieval word, I just mean a word from a medieval language. Uh, so I'll give you the word this episode and leave you in suspense as to the definition until next time. Uh, maybe we could even turn it into a little game of Balderdash on Twitter. Uh, there will be more traditional riddles, um, but I'm going to try alternating mystery words and riddles for a little while. So our word for today is... Argness. Argness, A-R-G-H-N-E-S-S. What is Argness? Is it a lost castle in Scotland? Is it the state of feeling like the comic strip character Kathy? Uh, oh, wait, you know, I think Kathy says ack, doesn't she? Who says arg? I think, is it Charlie Brown who says arg? None of those are the real definition anyway. Um, that will be illuminated next time. Uh, and also the real pronunciation of this word probably isn't argness. It's probably something closer to like argness. Um, but again, we'll deal with that next episode. Until then, uh, you can find out more about the show at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email me there with questions or comments at patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or if you prefer a more public form of conversation, you can tweet at me on Twitter at MDTPodcast. I think that's going to do it for this installment. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>